morning, friends. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I know we have several that are traveling away. I know several that have traveled in, and so it's good to see you guys. If you're a guest here, uh, we are glad you're here with us, and we want the opportunity to get to know you in a little bit. So stick around afterward for just a few minutes and let us get to know you. My name is Greg Pertle. I'm the family minister here at Greenville Oaks. Colin Packer, our lead minister, is out with his family. He's actually preaching somewhere else this morning, and so uh, he'll be back next week. But we just finished up our four weeks on our summer of service, but that doesn't mean summer of service is over. It's a whole summer that we're continuing to serve. And right now, as a church, we have about 3,500 hours that together we have served in our community or served others in some way. I think that's great that in one month or a little over a month, we've served about a third of the time. Our goal this year or this summer is 10,000 hours of serving others. And I believe we're going to get there. So continue to log your hours and let us know. Remember, it's not about the hours. It's not about who we are, but it's the fact that we get the opportunity to reflect God's glory to others and serve and bless others in the name of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, or I guess a little over a week ago, we finished up Impact Week, and there's still stories that are coming out of that. One for me is this last Friday, I had a phone conversation with a woman who we had talked to a couple of times. We knocked on her door a week and a half ago. We talked to a couple of times over the last week or so. And then I was able to call and tell her that we were going to be able to help her with some needs that she has around her house and some long-term needs that she's had for a while and be able to help her get in a better place. And as I shared this news with her, she said, Greg, you don't understand. I just posted on Facebook that I needed to see God in some way today. And you call me two minutes later. And she started to cry. And she just started saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God. She said, Greg, I knew there was a reason that those four young men and women knocked on my door that day. And ever since then, I've been seeing the light. And so God is good, and God is continuing to work in this through our, through our service, through Impact Week, in other ways. And we want to continue to share those stories and continue to celebrate those things. And while we're not celebrating yet, we're excited that this month we have three different mission trips that are taking place. About 55 of our church members are going to gather uh, in three different trips. This next Saturday, we have a group that's going to be leaving for Belize to serve down there. The week after that, we have a group that's going to be going to Panama. And then the week after that, we have a group that's going to be going to Houston and serving at the Impact Church down there with a VBS, at a VBS for about 200 kids. And these are all different ways that we continue our summer of service. And so one of the things we want to do this morning is we want to pray for all those that are going on these mission trips since they're coming up uh, over the next few weeks. And so I realize we have a lot of people out of town and we had a lot of people that we prayed over in first service, but I'd like to ask anyone that's going on the Belize trip, on the uh, Panama trip, or the Impact Houston trip, if you're in here, if you would please stand. We want to pray over you this morning and pray for those that aren't here as well. So do we have any that are going? I know we do have some that are going on those trips. Yeah, if you guys will stand. If you're going on those trips, if you guys will stand. And then I'm going to ask, I know we don't do this a lot, but um, if there's some of you that are nearby these people, if you would stand and just surround them, maybe put a hand on their shoulder, and uh, we want to pray over them and pray God's blessing on them as they are faithful in going where they feel God leading them to go this summer in these, uh, in these mission trips. So... All right, thank you guys. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, you're good. You're faithful to us, and we want to be faithful in our service to you. And 
And we see you at work. We've already seen you through Impact Week and through the ways that you continue to bring stories and bring people that we have the opportunity to serve out of that. But at the same time, as we've gone to our neighbors, you're sending about 55 or so now out to another part of the state and other parts of the world. And we pray for them, especially this morning, that you would give them strength. We pray for safe travel. We pray for unity among the teams that serve. We pray that you would use them to bless others, men, women, and children, in the name of Jesus. We pray for conversations. We pray that language would not be a barrier, but your love would break all the barriers. We pray that you would use them to shed your light in the worlds where they go this month. And God, not just that you would use them to bless others, but we pray that each one that goes on these trips would come back changed because they've seen and experienced you in a different way. And so God, bless them as well. May their lives be changed. May they be transformed through their acts of service and come back and help transform us as a church. God, we love you. And so we ask that you go before them. We ask that you build the excitement. We ask that you continue to use them. And we can't wait to celebrate at the end of this month the stories that are going to come out of what you do through these trips. God, we love you, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, thank you guys. You all can have a seat. So today we begin a new series, Believers in Babylon. And the question is this, who am I? Who are we? In a culture that is less friendly, even hostile at times, towards Christians. Another question that we want to ask is, how do we influence a culture that doesn't value the same things that we value? And I can't think of a better place to look than the story of Daniel. Now, when I was a little boy, I had my children's Bible. It was about this thick, about this wide, this big, and each page was a different story. and had a picture at the top, and it had the Bible verse and the Bible story at the bottom. And I can still vividly remember the pictures of the stories of Daniel of Daniel standing before the king, of Daniel and the writing on the wall, the handwriting on the wall, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, of Daniel standing in a den of lions looking up at the king. I remember all these stories and how cool these stories were, and I loved them. As a kid, they were just stories to me, but as I've gotten older and as I've read this more and more, it's beginning to take on a new meaning to me. You see, the story of Daniel is not just an adventure story. It's not just a story about a good guy. It's a story about identity. It's a story about courage. It's a story about hope. And over the next seven weeks, we want to see that. And we're going to watch and learn from Daniel in these ways. And I want you to understand also that when we read texts like this, especially a story like Daniel, there are three different readings I want us to consider. One, there's the story as it happened in real time, as it happened in that moment. There's that story. But then there's another story. You have to remember that these Bible stories weren't written as they're taking place. They're written years later. And in the case of Daniel, about 440 or so years later is when it's actually written because it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And the story that's taking place in Daniel and the hostility and the exile that we're going to see in a minute 
looks different at the time when the book of Daniel is written, but there's a similar thing going on where the Jews are struggling and on the verge of oppression. But then there's a third reading, and that's us today as we read the story. And so over the next few weeks as we read Daniel, and I want to encourage you at home during the week, read these, read these stories, read this passage. Let's read the book of Daniel together and come with the things that we've read as, as Colin and Matt and Keith will each share different parts of this series. But the way we read it today is another reading, and so we have all of these at play when we read the book of Daniel. Today we're going to be in chapter 1, and it sets up the entire book. It, you're going to see themes that are going to be carried throughout each week. And so let's begin by reading together. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Well, first of all, verse 1 is very specific. We have a date, a time, it's the perfect setting scripture right there. It's very specific, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar acts, and that's true. But verse 2 is the more important verse, because not only is Nebuchadnezzar acting here, he doesn't know why he's acting. He thinks he knows why he's acting, but he doesn't fully know why he's acting. And what we find out in verse 2 is that Nebuchadnezzar is acting because God is acting. Two truths, one greater than the other. Nebuchadnezzar acts, but God is the one in charge. And that's going to be a theme throughout the book of Daniel, and especially today. So besides that contrast there of who's acting, we also have a contrast of cities. We have Babylon and Jerusalem, and they represent two totally different ideals. Jerusalem is a city of spirit. Babylon was the city of flesh. Jerusalem is the city of God. Babylon is the city of idols, especially money and wealth. Jerusalem is a city that's meant for peace. Babylon was the city of war. And the prosperity and abundance of Babylon had an influence on the entire known world at the time. The music, the fashion, the food, art, entertainment, education, all of culture was being influenced by Babylon. And by worldly standards, Babylon was definitely great. It was massive in scope and in size. There was a lot of creativity, a lot of intelligence in Babylon. Think about You may have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Well, this is where they were, and it took a lot of ingenuity to create that. It was a big and powerful city, and a lot of people wanted to be like Babylon. But for all of its greatness, the Bible is very clear about one thing, and we see it here. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in Revelation. That Babylon itself, or as a metaphor, is the epitome of evil. There came a time when the people who lived in Jerusalem, God's people, who had patterned their lives on the worship of the living God, became enamored, just like everyone else, 
by the exciting ways of Babylon. They began to forget God and started chasing money and all the things that come with it. They chose the way of Babylon over the ways of Jerusalem. They chose the ways of Nebuchadnezzar over the ways of God. And when you choose to live as if you're in Babylon, well, then God may just allow you to end up in Babylon only as slaves. So God's people are exiled. Just as in the garden after creation, they didn't listen to the prophets, and in their unfaithfulness, God is faithful to the promise he made with Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that a nation far away would rise up against them if they turned their back on him. Now they were going to be rebranded with a new identity under the rule of a new king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this guy is something else. Let's just say Nebuchadnezzar loves him some Nebuchadnezzar. He loved Babylon, but he loved himself more. Nebuchadnezzar was a ruler with a pedigree. He's following his father who helped Babylon rise to its greatness. So there's a family name there. He has great power and wealth. He's brutal and ambitious. He's egotistical and he's impatient. And he is the center of the Babylonian empire. And even though there are other gods in his empire that he worships, there are other idols that he worships, make no mistake, when it comes down to it, Nebuchadnezzar is at the center of everything. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his own eyes, he is God. And that's the ruler. And he's a smart man, too. He's very intelligent. And he has a great plan. Let's read about that plan. Let's continue reading. Verses 3 through 7. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defects, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So now we meet Daniel. We're introduced to Daniel and his companions. And Daniel and his friends are good God-honoring young men. But they're caught up in the backwash of a culture that had turned their back on God and his ways. And so they, like their friends and others, had to face the punishment, the exile that God had for them. And Nebuchadnezzar has four pieces to this plan. The first is isolation. He's going to take them away from family. He's going to take them away from their nation and give them a new nationality and lead them into Babylonian nationality. He's going to take them away from their home to a new place. And by taking items from the temple, destroying the temple and taking items and putting them in his own temple, one of the things that he's communicating 
and that a lot of these Jews would start to believe is that the God of Israel, our God, had been defeated, and maybe even worse, was now dead. It's isolation. But that's not the only thing he's going to do. The next piece, the next step is indoctrination. No longer will Daniel and his friends have the Jewish teaching of the Torah and learn God's ways and learn to pray and learn how to live in community with other Jewish believers. But now the things they would learn would be magic and astrology and divination, things that a good Jew certainly would never, ever study or believe in. Except that Daniel does. The next one, the third part here is confusion. They're going to change their names. Think about this. The name Daniel means God is my judge. That's a pretty good name. I don't know how you feel about your name. I'll be honest, growing up, the name Greg, eh, it didn't do much for me. But my parents named me Greg, so I kind of liked that. The only association really I had was with the Brady Bunch, because there was a character named Greg, right? Which we still watch in our family, crazy. But, you know, I was never real crazy about it. But it's my name, so I might as well keep it, and I kind of like it. And definitely, don't take my name away from me, right? But now, Daniel, whose name is God is my judge, is going to have his name taken away and his name changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bell's Prince, in honor and reference one of the Babylonian gods, because you see when they changed the name, each name, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, other names, because there were many others who had their names changed as well, every name had a reference or an honor to the gods that the Babylonians would worship. Even worse, I'll be honest, the text doesn't say this, so if you want to argue with me, we can talk afterward, but there's a good chance Because Daniel was under the chief of the eunuchs, that Daniel also was forced to become a eunuch. I mean, think about it. You have an egotistical king, and he's going to bring in these good-looking, strong young men to work in his courts, to work in his palace, to be his servants, to be leaders alongside him. Do you think that he's going to let any possibility of them taking his harem or others, be he's going to let that be a possibility? I don't think a guy like Nebuchadnezzar is going to let that happen. And so consider the possibility for a minute that not only has his name changed, but now physically he's deformed, he's emasculated. And the pain and the mental and emotional and spiritual challenge that would come with that, especially for a Jew. It's confusion. And then part four of the plan is compromise. We're going to see it in several tests again and again and again, the first of which we see right here in chapter one regarding food. So let's read verses eight through 16 together. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. 
Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. I got to say, if I'm one of these other guys at the end of this story, I'm not happy with Daniel and his friends, am I? Because now I'm eating vegetables and drinking water instead of eating the good food that I've had for the last few days or weeks or months, however long it had been. The food story gives us a taste of things to come for Daniel and his friends. He chooses to navigate this as one whose identity is in the living God, making a stand without knowing the outcome. Sometimes we like to look at this story or stories in the Bible and say, oh, well, Daniel knew what was going to happen. But in the real-time story, Daniel doesn't know what the outcome's going to be. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he takes a stand anyway. And verse 8 is a pivotal verse where Daniel is resolved to calm decisiveness. And why this? Why now? Well, the way I've always heard this story is it had to do with Jewish food laws. You know, kosher is not just a label you see in the store. It's a very real thing. And Old Testament laws were there, were written. You you can look at Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy chapter 12. There are these laws that explain what is clean and unclean, especially when it comes to meat. But even then, clean foods must be prepared correctly. And this is strange to us But these laws helped set the Israelites apart. It was an identifying marker of them being clean or unclean, of them being holy or unholy. One thing about this food is it's supposed to be a special treat. It's supposed to be a favor for all of these who are better because the king wants them to be strong and be better. But by rejecting the food of the king... David is asking for the food of the poor. He's rejecting the special treat. It's also probable that Babylonian food would be unclean, even vegetables. We don't know exactly what the king's food and wine were. But the reason this food was given, Daniel saw right through it. Because most likely, in another way, King Nebuchadnezzar is just trying to manipulate. Because he's smart. If I give them good food, they'll be on my side. Not only will they be strong and come and work for me, but they'll be on my side. So here's what I think. Here's the real reason that I believe Daniel resolved not to defile himself and not to eat the king's food. Maybe it had something to do with the Jewish food laws, but really when it comes down to it, I don't think it's about the laws. I don't think it's really even about the food. I think it's about taking a stand of dependence on God against a dependence on the king. And Daniel is drawing a clear line of who he is going to follow and depend on, but watch how he does it. As we near the end this morning, I want you to pay attention to these three things. The way he takes his stand. The first way is a characteristic. Daniel has these three characteristics that I see. The first is Daniel is humble. Notice, he goes and asks not to be defiled. He goes and asks, hey, can we have something else to eat? And what's the answer? The answer is, 
Daniel, I really like you. You're a good guy, but you know, the king, he'll have my head if I let you eat that. So it's probably better if you just keep eating this food. That's like, you know, when you go to, go to mom and she says no, and then you go to dad and he says, well, I might do this, but I don't really want to say no, but I'll just let your mom say no. And we talk about that every once in a while, you know, that happens in our family too. He doesn't really want to say no, but he's saying no. So what does Daniel do? He goes to the guy underneath him. He doesn't even go over his head. He goes to the guy underneath him and says, please. He says, please. Just test us. Just try it out. And the guy says, 10 days. What can it hurt? Daniel's humble. And God grants him favor. I think if there's one thing I could change about the American church right now, it would be the fact that the world views us as arrogant. And we need more humility in the way we act and speak and treat others. Doing the right thing matters, but how we do the right thing matters just as much. The second thing, Daniel's hopeful. It's hard for us to understand true hope and expectation when we have access to everything that we need. But for Daniel, remember all those things he just lost. An entire identity crisis. But he expects God to act He has confidence in God, not arrogance, because he's humble. It's not entitlement, but a confidence that trusts God is at work in the situation. Yet he doesn't know if it will work out for him. And then the third one is Daniel is wise. It's his wisdom that allows him the ability to navigate the manipulative ways of Nebuchadnezzar. He picked his battle. He could have picked the education and thrown the books into the fire and said, I'm not going to study astrology and walked out of the class. He could have said, you're never going to call me Belteshazzar. That's not my name. He doesn't do that. This is the moment that he picks to take the stand. And this first stand would prepare them for future stands they would have to make. Yet they remained faithful to God and God to them, even though they didn't know the immediate outcome. We're not going to read it, but the rest of the chapter tells us 10 days becomes three years. And when Daniel and his friends appear before the king, they are better in every way than all the others. In this case, Daniel really is what he eats. He chose the food of dependence on God rather than dependence on the king. He could have chosen to see himself as a victim. He could have felt entitled as if God owed him something for his trouble. He could have decided to be his own hero of the story and gone renegade and rebel and become a martyr. He could have given up and given in to the pressure of Babylon and conformed to the culture. But instead, he chose to trust God and his faithfulness in the midst of this identity crisis, even without knowing the outcome. So, Church, we have options too. We can build a wall around ourselves and try to keep the world out. That hasn't worked too well, though, has it? It hasn't lessened the influence of culture in our lives, but it has lessened our influence in the world. We can yell and scream and fight, which may have its place at times, but usually it ends up making us look desperate and angry with an identity more of who and what we are not rather than who we are and what we are for. We can let fear overwhelm us or take the easy way and give in to the culture around us. Or 
4. We can follow the example of Daniel and live among the world, realizing the culture is what it is, but we still have influence. We are called to be humble, hopeful, and wise. We are called to be faithful to our God who is faithful to us, even if we don't know the immediate outcome. And above all, we root our identity in dependence and obedience to the living God rather than the kings, rulers, and nations of this earth. I hope over the next few weeks that you will join us as we go into this series, Believers in Babylon, and see what we have to learn from Daniel about living in our own culture today. Let's pray. God, thank you for examples like Daniel. Be with us as we are called to live lives of humility, lives of hopefulness, lives that are wise. Give us everything we need to do that. Bless us as we go out this week. May we influence the world, be salt and light in the world in the name of Jesus. And it's through him we pray. Amen.